Peace be upon you. Usually when a person is making a big decision in their life, they'll often make a list with the pros and cons to determine if they should proceed with the decision or not. For instance, if someone is debating which school to attend, whether to switch jobs or to proceed into a new venture, they'll make two columns on a piece of paper with one side listing all the pros for proceeding with the decision and then all the cons, the downsides, if they uh, uh, go down that path. For these kinds of decisions, this process makes sense because by assessing the pros and cons, you can get a landscape regarding the ups and downs of moving forward with the decision or not, and it can help in the overall decision-making process. But there are certain kinds of decisions that utilizing this kind of process at the best case is utterly useless, but worst case detrimental to the personal growth of the individual. An example of such a decision that this kind of process has no benefit for is something like asking, should you have kids? Now, this is assuming you're married, you're in a stable relationship, and, uh, you know, some people, they will assess that, oh, the way you need to determine this is, again, by assessing the pros and cons. So online, I found an article which goes through the steps of assessing the pros and cons of having a baby. So they have this table, and on one side, it has the pros, the benefits of having a baby, and then on the, the uh, right side, it has the cons, the downside of having a baby. So in the pros section, it says you, might, uh, you may find a purpose in life. It says having a baby may show you a different perspective on the world. You might feel that you have missed out on something without having a baby. Having kids can be exciting. And the list goes on. Then it says cons. These are the downsides of having a baby. It says having babies can be expensive. No guarantee your kids uh, will like you. Some parents don't know how to raise their kids. Kids may get on the wrong track. You may lose your kid under tragic circumstances. Having kids can be exhausting. And this list goes on. And this is a way for people to assess if they should have a baby or not, but it's utterly useless. And there's a fundamental reason to why this is such a horrific way of making these kinds of decisions. It is because who you are after having kids is completely different person than who you were before having those kids. Ask anyone who has had kids if their priorities and what they value in life shifted from before having those kids to after having kids. And I doubt you will find any active parent today to say that their priorities, their values, the way they viewed life, their perspective has not shifted after having kids. This is because the person after the experience is almost not the same person as the individual before the experience in ways that the person before the experience cannot even comprehend. What that person values, prioritizes, works for, has been completely altered after that experience, to the point that the person who made the table before the experience will list pros and cons that are no longer applicable to the person after the experience. Trying to put the pros and cons of a transformational experience is a losing endeavor because we are assessing things through a certain lens without the full perspective, without knowing the full reality. There are certain elements in life that once you experience those, your outlook on life, your perspective, your priorities, your values have so fundamentally shifted that you could not have perceived life under this new lens when assessing it prior to that fact. Consider the heavyweight champion, Mike Tyson 
who spent his entire youth caring for nothing more than to be the best in the world in boxing. He reigned as the undisputed world heavyweight champion from 1987 to 1990, claiming his first belt when he was only 20 years old, which to date is still the record as the youngest boxer ever to win a heavyweight title. Afterwards, he ended up winning more belts and was the first heavyweight boxer to simultaneously hold the WBA, the WBC, the IBF titles, as well as the only heavyweight to unify them in succession. This was a person who was single-minded on his pursuit, to the point that nothing else in life mattered aside from obtaining and retaining his titles. Do you think if Tyson at this time could perceive that perhaps in the future, these belts that he cared so passionately to obtain would not hold the same level of interest for his future self? Well, in 2011, 60 Minutes did an interview with Mike Tyson, and they walked into a room where on the table were all the different belts that he won. And I want you to hear his reaction to these belts now as an adult. Look at this stuff. This is history here. Mm. You, are, you are history. This is garbage. I can say, hey, I bled for garbage. <laughs> so this is meaningless. No, at one time it meant a lot. When you're just a young kid, this is everything to you. But then you realize your priorities change. And you just want your children to be happy and do nice things, and that makes you happy. This is nothing. This is just nothing, man. Consider Mike Tyson telling you that his belts are garbage. They're utterly meaningless in comparison to the joy and happiness of doing good things for others, for spending time with his kids. Mike Tyson, before settling down and having a family and kids, could not imagine how the things that seemed so important to him back then would seem utterly useless, and as he describes it, like garbage for him in the future. This is because who Mike Tyson was back then was a completely different person to who Mike Tyson was after he matured in life. And it is this failure to realize that when we go through a transformational experience, who we are and what we value will be so fundamentally different at that point that we are incapable of understanding that perspective. I recently listened to the interview with the rapper T-Pain, and he was saying before having kids, all he could think about was how to be number one on the Billboard charts. Then afterwards is how he could retain staying number one on the Billboard charts to the point that he lived in a separate home from his wife and baby because he thought that they would distract him from his goal. But eventually, as his kids got older and he matured and got past some of these struggles and hardships that he faced, his priorities shifted 180 degrees from his work to his family. He said he never expected to have such a shift in perspective. But these kinds of transformational experiences are not limited to just when someone has kids, starts a family. Uh, they happen all through life where we have such a, a game-changing event that it's hard for us to grasp what it will be like after the event before we experienced it. And I'll give an example of just growing up. 
I remember when I was in elementary school and we had some family friends who were in high school. And I'd ask them, I'd say, hey, what do you guys do for a recess and lunch? Uh, and they said, oh, yeah, we just stand around and talk. And I was completely baffled by this. I mean, what? You don't have monkey bars. You don't have a, a jungle gym to play with. You guys don't play tag. <laughs> You're not playing wall ball or handball or dodgeball. And the fact that they would just want to stand around and talk seemed completely uh, uh, silly to me. Like, why wouldn't you want to go and play? But the aspect is, this is, I was looking at things through the lens of a child, not through the lens of a teenager. And these kind of paradigm shifts that we experience through life that happen through age, through uh, uh, events, uh, they're hard for us to grasp what we are going to prioritize, how we're going to view life when these events take place. Uh, recently, I watched a docuseries on a Netflix called Surviving Death, and it's definitely worth watching. But one of the topics this series addresses are people who had near-death experiences, NDEs. These are individuals who claim that their physical bodies were dead and they had been uh, had some mystical out-of-body experience. Uh, now, I don't want to get into the uh, Quranic understanding of how could this have happened, what really took place, any of that. What I want to emphasize is that these individuals who were so content with life prior to that experience we're all saying that once they had that experience and they were in this, you know, other dimension, this other consciousness, whatever you want to call it, that they didn't want to come back to this world. Now, can you imagine someone who has loved ones, obligations, all these things in this world that they think they're attached to would ever be in such a perspective to so easily wanted to just uh, leave this world and go to that other uh, side? And this goes to show that these individuals they could not grasp what their perspectives would be, what their values would be after having such a profound experience. Consider that two minutes before having that experience, if you probably asked them, would you want to leave this world, all your loved ones behind, they would say absolutely no. But once they had such an experience, they described how they didn't want to come back when it happened. You know, consider individuals who have uh, uh, hallucinogens and then they have these out-of-body experiences. And again, this is against the Quran, but nevertheless, people have experienced these things and they say it's one of the most impactful, meaningful events of their lives. And all of a sudden, after having that experience, the way that they view their uh, relations with others, their time on this planet has fundamentally shifted to the point that the prior self could not grasp what that experience was like. You know, for the last several years, one of the new fads within uh, the uh, tech and influencer community has been the push for mindfulness and meditation. One of the interesting pushbacks that I heard from a lot of people who are in the camp of hustlers and entrepreneurs and productivity gurus is that they don't want to get into meditation and mindfulness because they are scared they will lose their edge. But isn't that ironic? Because the only reason they would lose their ambition and their so-called edge from being a workaholic, a hustler, an entrepreneur, is that they find that what they were valuing before experiencing meditation, mindfulness, awareness, was overemphasized in their life towards what they really should be prioritizing. But rather than reassess their priorities, they prefer to stay away. We cannot judge the pros and cons of a transformational experience because, again, who we are after the transformation is completely different than who we were before the transformation. What we value 
we prioritize, what our ambitions are, they will all shift. So to judge it by the metrics of what we know today, before the event, no longer applies and is a fundamental losing strategy in trying to determine to proceed in such decisions. But why am I discussing all this? What does this have to do with the Quran? If you've been listening to this podcast, then most likely it means that you have discovered the Quran. And if you had the blessing of being able to access this book without the cultural nonsense that has infiltrated this religion, then you may be shocked by the transformational effect this book has had on you. I grew up as a traditional Muslim and learned to memorize surahs of the Quran with little to no understanding. I would spend my weekends going to watch lectures, uh, Islamic lectures, and spend my Sundays going to Islamic Sunday school. But as I got older and started asking more questions and being more and more dissatisfied with the answers I was getting, I got to the point that when I was in college, I didn't really know what I believed. I definitely believed in the oneness of God, but I couldn't say definitively what my religion was because my question was, well, how do I know my religion is any more right than someone else's religion? You know, we're both claim we have the truth. We both, in essence, believe these things to our core. How do I actually know what's true? And by God's leave, when I was in college, around my uh, junior year, I met someone, and this was a submitter. And this individual, he carried a Quran around with him. And he would do his Salat actually on time. And I was baffled by this, because he seemed like a normal dude. And every time I would ask him questions about the religion, uh, he would give me answers, not from Hadith, not from philosophy, not from, you know, poetry, straight from the Quran. And he read and studied the Quran in the language of English, which I was, again, stunned by because I, I didn't see this happen before. And uh, at the beginning, I was taken back by this. And I spent six months. I said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to prove this guy wrong uh, because his understandings, again, contradicted what I was raised with. And the more I studied, the more I learned, I realized that what he was telling me was right. And it came from a translation by Dr. Rashad Khalifa. As some of you might not be aware, Dr. Khalifa was the first real modern-day movement for the Quran alone, the worship of God alone, the abolishment of a, a Hadith, and becoming a very strict scripturist, uh, what's known today as a Quranist. And he did this by God's leave. And not only that, one of the fundamental questions was, how do you know that this Quran is from God? And by God's leave, God gave him the knowledge that the uh, Quranic initials, these 29 chapters that have Quranic initials that precede them, that they uh, consistently end up becoming multiples of 19 in their respective chapters. And this validated every letter, every word, every verse, every surah of the Quran. And by this, I was absolutely taken back. If you ask me, before having this experience, before going through this transformation, hey, at what age are you really going to buckle down and study the religion? I would have told you, oh, when I'm 40, I'll start thinking about it and stuff. But right now, I just want to, you know, kind of experience life. But after I had that experience, shortly after I graduated from uh, college, and I was spending five, six nights a week going to Quran studies, you know, anytime I had free time, I was studying the Quran to the point that my uh, fiance at the time was baffled because I was giving her this information as I was learning it. And she was thinking what it was going to be like to spend our nights and weekends uh, hanging out with people, you know, who weren't our age, they weren't our demographic, and uh, um, studying this, this, this scripture. 
And it seemed totally, you know, bizarre. But as she got more into it, as I got more into it, we realized that this book, it contained everything that a person wants. Any problem, any issue, any obstacle that they are facing, this book has those answers. And what's fascinating is when I started becoming more and more involved in this religion, I started reaching out to these people I grew up with, individuals that I, you know, uh, worshipped with and studied with and went to school with. And I thought that they would be just as enthusiastic about, you know, these uh, claims. But what I quickly realized was what they were doing is creating a pros and cons of should they follow or not. And the list looks something like this. They said, cons. Oh, they don't get to uh, drink any more alcohol. Cons. They don't get to go out and party and clubbing. Uh, they have to spend their free time studying the Quran. Uh, they have to pray five times a day, including getting up at dawn to perform their uh, Fajr prayer. And uh, they have to stick their foot in the sink when they do ablution before they do their Salat. So these seem like some pretty heavy cons. And then the pros, they said, eternal salvation. Now, the fundamental problem with doing this kind of analysis is that they were weighing those cons way too heavily because they valued partying and drinking and clubbing so much more is because they were valuing the things of this life. For them, those are what took priority. But realizing that if they truly accepted the message, their priorities and their values would be exclusively the hereafter. That the vanities of this world that they were weighing so heavily would have such little value for them if they moved forward. But there was another fundamental mistake they were making. A lot of them decided, the vast majority of them at that, decided, they said, you know what, this sounds great and all, but I'm going to continue down this path of sin and heedlessness, and later on when I'm older, then I'll come back and take the religion seriously. If someone genuinely believes that this Quran has the answers to all their problems and the secret to perfect happiness, then does it make sense that they would delay adopting the message from this book in their own lives for one second? The only reason a person will put off applying this message in their life is because deep down, they really don't believe the claims of this book. In Surah 10 verse 57, it says, O people, enlightenment has come to you hearing from your Lord and healing for anything that troubles your hearts and guidance and mercy for the believers. If someone genuinely believed that, would they wait one second to start applying this book? Would they say, you know what, uh, I hear what this message is saying, I understand what God is asking me to do, but I'm going to continue sinning, and then later on I'll come back and you know straighten up. Again, a person who makes that kind of assessment is just admitting that they don't really believe this scripture. So the underlying question is, how should someone decide if they should proceed with a transformational experience, knowing full well that what they value before the experience will be fundamentally shifted after the experience? The answer is simple. Look at the individuals who have been transformed by this experience and ask yourself, are they a better person after the experience than they were before the transformation? Are they living a more rich, meaningful life after the transformation than before? 
Look at the lives of people who went through that transformation and try to decide, are they happier? Are they possessing the good qualities that you'd want to possess? Do they have inner peace, increased patience, more compassion, more appreciation? These traits that are universally recognized as good? Or did the experience leave them to be more resentful, more bitter, more contentious, more miserable, and more unappreciative? By looking at the lives of the people who have been transformed by this message, you can assess if this is a path that you should proceed with as well. Now the question is, who are these examples? I mean, do you go around looking for them? Interesting enough, the Quran is full of these people and their examples. Consider the history of Moses, that when he first was summoned by God, he was insecure, he was doubtful, he was concerned that his tongue would get tied, that they would kill him, that he was going to be incapable of delivering this message. But after he transformed by this message, you see that he was courageous, he was steadfast, and grew in appreciation and wisdom. Look at the example of Abraham, who God commanded Muhammad to follow the religion of Abraham. Abraham was never an idol worshiper. He was extremely kind. He was clement. He stood up for the truth using reason and logic. Or Noah, who in the face of persecution and opposition and ridicule, showed that he was steadfast and trustworthy. These are the traits that as believers we would love to have. As human beings, we would love to have these traits. One of the prayers in the Quran that was from Abraham is that he asked that the example he set for future generations be a good one. In Surah 26, verse 83, it says, My Lord, grant me wisdom and include me with the righteous. Let the example I set for the future generations be a good one. These examples that God has placed in the Quran are to resolve that question. How should we expect our lives to be transformed if we apply the lessons and commandments from this book? In Surah 17, verse 89, it reads, We have cited for the people in this Quran all kinds of examples, but most people insist upon disbelieving. In Surah 18, verse 54, it says, We have cited in this Quran every kind of example, but the human being is the most argumentative creature. In Surah 30, Verse 58, it reads, Thus we have cited for the people in this Quran all kinds of examples. Yet no matter what kind of proof you present to the disbelievers, they say you are falsifiers. Individuals refuse to accept that if they apply the principles in this book, the benefits they will be able to have in this life and in the hereafter. That these things that they think they value, they think they prioritize, that if they had the true message, would be fundamentally shifted, that their priority would shift from being this world to being the hereafter. In Surah 39, verse 27, it reads, We have cited for the people every kind of example in this Quran that they may take heed. God willing, let's apply that to our life. If you have any questions about how your life can be fundamentally transformed for the good, by applying this Quran, simply read its contents and see what it's done for other believers who have gone down that same path. In Surah 57 verse 9 it reads, He is the one who sends down to his servants clear revelations in order to lead you out of darkness into the light. God is compassionate towards you, 
most merciful. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at QuranTalk at gmail.com. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, please download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store where you'll find a word-by-word translation of the Quran along with a full verse translation by Dr. Rashad Khalifa. And if you like the podcast, please share it with other people or leave us a review. And until next time, peace and God bless.